And all of God's people said, Amen. Now please bow with me just before we open the word for our message. Father, once again, we thank you for the precious time of praise and worship we've experienced so far. And we pray that the end result of all that we've done today might be a demonstration of what Charles just sung, where we might fully and wholly and completely surrender ourselves to the indwelling Christ so that he might be seen in our lives. We lay a hold of your promise given through your prophet Isaiah that your word will not return to you void, but it will accomplish the purpose to which you send it. We thank you that this will be accomplished today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. St. Patrick, he was the missionary to uh, Ireland, and he trained men. They were called monks back in those days, but he trained men to go out and preach the gospel. He was the first evangelist there, and he was a godly man, really committed to the word. One message that he had always, it is said, before sending his men out was run along these lines. Wherever you go, be sure to preach the gospel. And if necessary, by word. You get it? Wherever you go, preach the gospel. And if necessary, by word. What was he saying? You have to live Christ. You have to demonstrate him in your life. This is what we want to talk about today. Now, last week, last Lord's Day, we focused on the birth of Christ. When the Word became flesh, Emmanuel, we call this the mystery of the Incarnation. But then we went beyond the first Christmas when the Incarnation of Jesus Christ took place. He went to the point where he left us. And he went back to heaven. He went back to his father. And then he sent another gift. He was a gift sent by God. He went to glory and he sent us a gift. That was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift brought about something else. Something wonderful. That gift was sent to indwell us. He was another Christ, if you want. Christ in the form of the Holy Spirit. And he was given for the purpose of glorifying Christ in our lives. He was given as a gift. Not so that Christ would only be with us, but that Christ would now also be in us. This is what I call the flesh becoming the word. In other words, as St. Patrick said, we are to live Christ, not just preach him by word. The flesh becomes the word because Christ is now within us and its purpose is to demonstrate his character within the world. I call this, the Bible calls it really, the mystery of godliness. The mystery of godliness. I call it the incarnation 
stage two. The first stage, the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. The second stage, the gift of the Holy Spirit, Christ in us. That's where we are today. But what does it mean? The mystery of godliness. Paul describes this mystery in 1 Timothy 3. And this is what he says. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church. Now notice this, of the living God, the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. I want you to listen carefully because you are going to be looking at some wonderful truths in the Word of God, truths that we do not normally look at because we are so careless by the way we look at Scripture. We don't go into it deep enough. But this is going to bless your socks off, I believe, when we talk about the godliness or the mystery of godliness. It's great! If I were to ask you right now, how many of you know what the mystery of godliness is? What would you say? And yet, it is one of the most important instructions for how a Christian is to live in this world. And so few Christians even know what it is. The mystery of godliness. He says, he appeared in a body. That's Jesus. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was sane by angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed in the world, was taken up into glory. What is this mystery of godliness? The common understanding of this text is that it is the incarnation of Christ by which godliness is restored to man. Now, godliness simply means that doing things which represents God or demonstrates or manifests God, that which is godlike. In other words, people look at this passage and says, this is the process of God's plan of salvation through which man is born again and then go on to be Christ-like or God-like based on the personal incarnation of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's talking about Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Then they list six events in the passage as we read. And this, that's the process, the outworking of the process of godliness. Now, while I agree with this in part, I don't believe that that does justice to the entire context of the passage in which the term, the mystery of godliness, is used. Nor does it do justice to the grammatical structure of the passage. Yeah, I'm telling you now about the necessity for knowing how to study your Bible. Because unless you know some of these rules, some of these directives, you will not be able to understand. Let's look at the passage. The concept is included within the context of the purpose for the book of 1 Timothy. If you look at the passage in your Bibles, this is what he says. I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's the context. That's the purpose for this writing. Christians to know how to behave as people of God. Isn't that important? 
Isn't it important? Do you want to know how you should behave as one in whom God lives? Yes, that's the instructions here, how to live. Paul is explaining how believers are to behave in the family of God. Or we could say, behave as members of the incredible body of Christ. Paul is concerned with our behavior as children of God. Not only that, he is concerned that our behavior reflect the true nature of the living, active God in the world. The living God. Not a God who is dead. He is alive. Where is he alive? In you, in me, and in the church. And we need to know how to behave with that God living within us. Is that important or not? You bet your life it is. And he uses two concepts to describe the church's posture and presence in the world. First, he says, it is the pillar of truth. The pillar of truth. Now, the word for pillar in this passage is stylus. The stylus of truth. The stylus is that which is strong and erect. It carries the connotation of holding up or holding high the truth. This is the purpose for the church being in the world. To hold high the truth. That's why you are here. To hold high the truth. The truth of God. That's how we behave properly. By holding high the truth. What truth? The truth once and for all delivered to the saints. It's a body of teaching. It's a body of doctrine personified in the person of Jesus Christ. But the sad thing is, many believers do not know the truth. They say they hold it in their hand. They have it. It's in the Bible. That's the truth. But they don't know it. They don't know the meaning of the Trinity. They have no idea of how two natures could be in one person unmixed without being two persons. They don't know anything about substitution and atonement. They don't know anything about inspiration of the scriptures. They don't know the truth. But yet you are here to hold it high. That's why these so-called new atheists are making such headway in the world today. Because they are well-educated men, doctorates. And they come across with authority. And they face a little Christian. And they shrink away. When they should be holding high the truth of God. You should know how to behave in the household of God. That's what this is all about. But then there's a second term he uses. It's the foundation of the truth. This is the Greek word for pedestal, which implies firmness and that which cannot be moved. When you combine these two concepts together, you get the idea of the church and believers as being the primary agency through which God's truth is firmly and unshakably held high in the world. And we're doing a miserable job with it. So few Christians can defend their faith. You turn on your radio and you turn on your TV 
and you listen to some of these people who profess to be preachers of the word of God and you've got to be made ashamed if you know the word of God. If you don't know it, you'll go after these people with your itching ear because they're talking the message you want to hear, not what is true. That's what we're here for, to hold the truth high and firmly, never wavering. This is a part of the mystery of godliness, that which God works out in our lives as he reveals himself in and through us. And so the mystery of godliness then is not simply the past incarnation of Christ into the world. And this is the important concept here. Write it down. If you have a piece of paper and pencil, it's amazing how few of us write, take notes. But you go to a seminar for how to make love, everybody's got their papers out. Go to a seminar, how to save money, how to make money, everybody got their pencils out. We come to a place, we learn the word of, nobody's got the pen out. Nobody writes. Isn't that amazing? The mystery of godliness is not simply the past incarnation of Christ into the world, but his present incarnation in the world through you and through me, through the church. That's the mystery of godliness. Now get it. This is important. We talk about the incarnation of Christ as a babe in Bethlehem's barn. Christ with us. But here's even a greater incarnation in practical terms. Christ in you. The hope of glory. This mystery here cannot refer to Christ's incarnation alone. Because the incarnation of Christ was spoken about in the Old Testament. And remember the word mystery here is a truth that was once known, once hidden, but now revealed. But the incarnation was not hidden in Scripture. Never hidden. And for instance, in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's a prediction of the incarnation. Micah 5, 2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. That's the incarnation. And so he's not talking only about the, in the incarnation of Christ here as a man. He's talking about the incarnation of Christ lived out in our lives. Paul is explaining to Timothy then unto us, that the mystery of godliness is that in this present age, now don't lose this, please get this, in this present age, Christ is revealing, Christ is manifesting himself as the word, the logos of God, the truth of God, in and through a, fa in and through a group of people called the body of Christ. That's you and that's me. Remember we said, Last time, someone said, if you want to see God, look at Christ. I say to you today, what he's telling us in this passage, if you want to see Jesus, look at you. Look at me. That's what this is all about. That's the mystery of godliness. 
And so the mystery, therefore, is the manner in which this divine revelation is manifested. How are we to manifest the person of Christ? Paul said it is done so by the churches living out what and who Christ is in the world. We become identified with Jesus Christ when we are regenerated, when we receive him as our personal Savior. We become identified with him. His death, his burial, his resurrection, all are attributed to us. God sees those events as happening to us. God looks into the world today and he's looking for Jesus. He's not looking in the manger. He's not even looking in the cross. You know where he's looking? In your life and in my life. And you know what? That's where the world is looking as well. Why do you say that you love God and you hate your brother? That's the concept here. Believers have the unspeakable mission of making the invisible God visible through how we live. Jesus, I say, is no longer just with us. He is now also in us. Beloved, what an amazing concept this is. Christ in us. Let's, let, let's follow through this in Scripture. It says, Christ has departed out of the world. Christ is no longer here. Notice this is what it says in John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. God with us, Emmanuel is leaving. Now, we could say if you're a literalist here, if you're taking literally, that means God going with him. Now listen carefully, I'm not going to be preaching heresy here. But Emmanuel is God with us, right? Emmanuel say he's going. Now we look at it logically. We said he's taking God with him. Follow me now. Having loved his own who were in the world, who were in the world, where is Jesus? He's going out of the world. But he's leaving someone behind. He is no longer to be in the world physically present. Emmanuel is gone. Physical presence. But now here's the thing. He's left someone in the world. Those whom he loved. Who are they? You and me who place faith in Jesus Christ. Now follow this carefully, beloved. We are still in the world. His body is in the world. This is what he says in John 17 in his prayer to his father. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world. That's you and me. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me. The name at which everyone will bow sometime. So that they may be one as we are one. We, while we are in the world, my friends, we are protected by the power of the triune God in order that we might reflect what he is like in the world. That's why you and I are here. To reflect what God is like. How did you celebrate Christmas? That all your actions and behavior 
reflect what God is like. Well, as Professor Howard Hendricks used to say, we better move on from here because this is too convicting. Why are we here? We are here to continue the ministry he began. Listen to what he says in Luke 4. He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also. That's why I was sent to proclaim. And he didn't only do it by his word. But now notice what he says in John 17 again. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. This is, Emmanuel is going back. Out of the world where God sent him. But does that mean that God is gone out of the world? No, 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 no. Why? Because although Emmanuel is not physically here, you and I are here. And God is living within us. So the gift of the Holy Spirit means God in us. Powerful, isn't it? We, Lord willing, we will be dealing with this subject about what does it mean for Christ to be in us for the first part of the year. Because it's such a wonderful truth and it gives us the identity of who we are. It's so sad to realize that not too many of us as Christians know who we really are in Christ. We don't know our identity. In other words, our standard and our walk and ministry is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to the Apostle John again in 1 John 2 verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him. How many of you claim to live in Jesus Christ? You're getting afraid now to raise your hand, eh? We all do place faith in Christ. Notice what the scripture says. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as he walk. Whoever claims to be in him should walk as he walked if they would like to. Uh-uh. Must. This is what John means by without works, faith is dead. You could tell me all you like you in Christ. But if you live like the devil, as far as I'm concerned, you're in the devil. 1 John 4, 17, in this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. Notice now, because in this world, we are like him. As he is in the world, so are we. Our love is to be the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you preach the gospel with boldness and humor. If you preach a positive gospel. Hmm? It doesn't say that. What does it say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love. That has to do with action, not words. Action. If you love one another. What an amazing concept this is and how little is it preached or even known by believers. We pay such little attention to the truth of God's word. We as the church are his body beloved. We are to complete his work on earth and from a human perspective we are the only ones who can do this. Unbelievers cannot do this. Only the people of God. We have been chosen to do this work. His task becomes our task. 
because we are united to him by the Spirit of God, by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we become partakers of the divine nature. And so the mystery of godliness in this passage is the clearest and most detailed conscription of how we are to do what Christ did. Listen carefully now. As his body, we are to be and to do now in the world exactly what he was and what he did when he was on earth. Did you get that? That's what this passage is saying. We are to do what he did and we are to be what he was when he was on earth. Because he's incarnated within us. And as a result, we too will be glorified even as he was. I say this to you again. This passage is telling us that the church is to celebrate Christmas every day. Do you get it? Christ incarnate in us by our life. The church is to celebrate Christmas every day because in a very real sense that is what this passage is telling us. The church, we are to be an ongoing incarnation of Christ by our behavior. Not just focus on it once a year. Notice how the text describes this mystery as an ongoing incarnation. First it says Christ was revealed in the flesh. We spoke about this last week. John 1.14 The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. No one has seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's what Jesus Christ came to do, to make God his Father known. The underlying truth is that Jesus as God loved the sinners so much that he identified with them as a man, but without sin. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. We as the church are to continue that incarnate purpose by doing the same, loving the sinner and seeking to win them to Christ. That's the initial thing. Loving the sinner, not the sin, and seeking to win them to Christ. You see, we are his body. He reveals himself through us. Listen to Paul in Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. For the sake of his body, which is the church, I have become its servants by the commission of God that he gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul is saying exactly what we've just been talking about. He's carrying out the mission of Christ who indwells him by proclaiming the word in all of its fullness. That's the mystery of godliness that he was unfolding. He says the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What is the mystery? Christ in you the hope of glory friends do you realize that Christ in you is your hope of glory Christ in you that's your identity only you and I as members 
of the incredible body of Christ can proclaim the truth of God. But it goes on. It says, secondly, he was vindicated in this spirit. He was vindicated. In... Now, why did Christ need to be vindicated? And by the way, the word here is vindic vindicated. One translation says that he was justified. Jesus was justified in the spirit. Some claim that this means that he had sinned and therefore he had to be justified. That's nonsense. The word is vindicated or validated, affirmed or confirmed. That's what it means. You see, Jesus was absolutely sinless. He knew no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. The Spirit of God validated, confirmed, affirmed that he was the Son of God. And his resurrection declared it in a powerful way as well. The corollary of this is that our life and ministry are to be both energized and affirmed by the Holy Spirit. It is true. It's not just a cliche. If we are doing anything for the ministry of Calvary Bible Church, or if you, if you are doing anything in your life that could be done without the Holy Spirit, it's all waste. It's all useless. It's no good. What would happen if the presence of Christ was withdrawn from Calvary Bible Church? Would we know it? Or would we continue to go on doing our thing? See, in the final analysis, the only thing that's going to count is this in the end. Was it Christ who did it in and through us? Those that we who were doing it in our own strength, for our own prestige, our own profit. His work was affirmed by the Spirit of God, and so must ours. We must work not by our own power, but by the power of the Spirit of God. All of our activities as an individual, as a church, must pass the test of the Holy Spirit if it is to be declared as being spiritually valid in the sight of God and man. That's what it means to live out the mystery of godliness, depending only upon the Spirit of God for all that we do, for our preaching, for our singing, for our ministering, for our helping the poor, all of those things. We could do that just for our own prestige. Do you realize that? Do you realize it's possible for two people to come up here and do the same action of giving $1,000 to ministry, and one could be doing it for himself while the other is doing it for God you look at it and you see it as one act God looks at it and only accepts one he was beheld by angels what does this mean we know that angels were closely involved with just about every aspect of the life of Jesus Christ in fact angels were involved with him even before he was born on that first Christmas some 2013 or so more years ago Angels announced his birth to Zechariah, to Mary, to Joseph, to the wise men, to the shepherds. They beheld his glory, the angels. They beheld his birth. They beheld his temptation. They beheld his agony in Gethsemane. They beheld his death. They beheld his resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. Throughout his earthly life and ministry, Jesus was the center of angelic interest and attention. But an emphasis in our passage is that he was continually being evaluated, scrutinized by angelic beings, the good and the bad. Jesus was vindicated before them. 
Even as God was vindicated by the faithfulness of Job, in spite of his pain and suffering, he vindicated the wisdom of God. What are angels looking at today and evaluating now that Jesus is gone? He's looking at your life, or they're looking at your life, they're looking at my life, they're looking at the life of the church. That's what angels are looking into now. Listen to this text. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. In other words, the wisdom of God is being demonstrated by your life and my life and the life of the church. Listen to Peter's contribution to this truth. He says, it was revealed to angels that they were not serving themselves, but you. That's you and me. When they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice now, even angels look, or angels long to look into these matters. Angels are naturally inquisitive about what God is doing in your life, in my life, in the life of the church even as they were with Jesus when he walked as man among men. Angels were examining him. Why? Listen again to the apostles' teachings. He says in 1 Corinthians 4.9, For it seems to me that God has put us as apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. Paul saw himself as a spectacle in the sight of angels. They were watching his behavior. Why? Paul goes even to the extent to say that angels are concerned with the way men and women dress while ministering in the church. That's right. In 1 Corinthians 11, he teaches that men are not to wear a head covering or have long hair when ministering specifically when praying or prophesying. On the other hand, he teaches that women are to wear a head covering and have long hair rather than short hair when praying or prophesying when the church is gathering together. Now I'm beginning to meddle. But that's the Word of God. He then cites several reasons, at least ten reasons, why this should happen. Why men and women are to dress in a certain way when they are ministering. And all of them are theological. None of them are cultural. Among one of the theological reasons for men and women to dress properly when ministering is this one in verse 10. For this reason and because of the angels, the women ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Isn't that strange? Because of the angels. Now, why is this important? Well, one part of the answer, of course, is what Paul specifically deals with in 1 Timothy. We must conduct ourselves properly in God's household, the family of God, the church. And God is even interested in the way we dress. Now, boy, we could really get off on this one. Because I believe is one thing that even makes some angels ashamed is the way both men and women dress today. And say, God doesn't care. Yes, He cares. That's what Paul says here. He cares. He cares how we dress, especially when we minister. He's telling us how to behave in the household of God 
but God dwelling within us. When we behave the way God tells us to behave, when we dress the way God tells us to dress, we reveal the mystery of godliness to those who watch us, to both man and angels. But why? How is it possible that our behavior as Christians reveal the great mystery of godliness? Paul gives us another part of the answer in Ephesians 3 and verse 10. He summarizes this entire concept. And referring to God the Father, respect to his plan to make one new man, the church from Jew and Gentiles, this is what he says. In other words, one of the things that he says about the church, this new entity in the world, no Jew, no Gentile, this new man, this new person in Christ, this new entity, he says, quote, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Do you get it? God is saying that the angelic beings are looking at the way we behave, the way we act, the way we dress, the way we do things to determine whether God is wise or foolish. Tell me something. This Christmas season, how did you make God look to the angels? By the way you behaved, by the way you dressed, by the things you said, by the things you did. Do you make him look wise for choosing you? Or foolish? Him? Huh? See, Lord, you made a mistake. Like Jesus, the angels are examining us when it comes to determining the wisdom of God. It says later on, he was, he was proclaimed among the nations. He did that. Who is responsible for the proclamation of the gospel to the nations now? You and me. And we do it not only through the preaching of the word, we do it by the way we live. We have a missionary program for that reason. We encourage our young people and all the ones to go out to proclaim the gospel. We encourage our people here to live Christ-like lives. Why? Because we want to proclaim the truth, the gospel, and if necessary, by word at times. And as a result of this, what happens? The next thing says he was believed in the world. That's the result of proclaiming Christ, of demonstrating Christ's likeness in the world. Jesus Christ was the sole object of saving faith while on earth. He still is today. But how do men and women see Christ today? He see, they see them in you and they see them in me. And where do we point them? If we point them to ourselves, if we point them to the church, we're not true to the commission. We've got to point them to Jesus Christ. So that's who they should see in our lives. Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 17, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe on me through their message. Jesus was praying for you and for me. That's the same passage here. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I, you, I in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. The world can only believe if Christ is seen in us. Do you know something one of the things that make the angels 
doubt the wisdom of God is when they look over the mission field and they see missionary agencies fighting against one another as to who should have the best place to minister or when they can't get along with each other on a mission field. But not only in the mission field here. And those who profess to know Christ fight one another and they're always contrary to one another and they're always at one another's throat. The angels cannot validate that we are the people of God or that God is a wise God in that fashion. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is one of the strongest missionary methods or evangelistic messages we can use. We need to love people into heaven. He was taken up into glory and so shall we when we are finished our job, our mission, our privilege of demonstrating Christ. Paul says in Colossians, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him. Where? In glory. Why? Because Christ in us is the hope of glory. And when he, Emmanuel, appears again to be with us, we will appear with him also. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into glory, one day he's coming back again. And he's going to call us, and we're going to send the glory as well. And he will appear with us. Christ in you, the hope of, do you live like this? Was all of this just theology to you? This is truth about God. This is your identity. This is why you are here. And if you miss this, you miss everything that God has for you when it comes to what it means to be in Him. We can anticipate being caught up to glory. Now, if you, if the local church orders itself according to the word of God as to doctrine, as to attitude, as to behavior, and to ministry, with Christ as our pattern, with Christ as our head, certain things will happen. And let me go through this quickly as we close. First of all, if we follow, and if we do as Chara said in the song, to surrender ourselves completely to him so the spirit of God works in and through us for his glory. First, Christ's life will be manifested. Paul says in Colossians to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We're going to focus on this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Because my friends, let me tell you, being in Christ is the most important place to be. Ephesians 2.20 says that God's power will be manifested. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work, we're within us. Not only within the preacher, the, not only the person to say, send your seed in now and you get a lot of things going, uh-uh-uh. The power, this immeasurable power resides in you as a believer. 
but God's grace will be manifested. Ephesians 2, 7, he says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The grace that we experience is to be manifested in the way we live. God's truth will be manifested. If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And beloved, it is one thing that people need to know today. It's the truth. So much error, so much heresy is being taught in the media today. And so many of God's people are imbibing it, taking it in. We need to manifest God's truth. But when we live the way he wants us to live, the way he lived, God's wisdom will be manifested. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. We talked about that. But God's love will be manifested. John 17, 23, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It is true, my friends. What the world needs now is love. It needs God's love. Where does it come true? You and through me. But finally, God's glory will be manifested. In Ephesians 3.21, it says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. We are here on this earth for one reason, and that's the same reason the Holy Spirit came when he came to indwell us. You know what the reason was? To glorify Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit came. Do you know why he's living in us? So that we might glorify Christ. That's why you are here. And if you and I are not doing that, you and I just as well be with Christ. Why do you say that, Pastor Lee? Because you're making God look like a fool in the sight of the angels. That's why he talked about those who come to the Lord's Supper and not eating properly, not drinking properly. He says some of you are, some of them are what? Sick. Some of you are asleep. You're dead. Who do you think killed them? God did it. Why? Because of this sin. Did God kill Christians? Mm-hmm. Why does he do it? Because they refuse to glorify him in their lives. And that's the purpose for being here. And if you and I are not fulfilling our purpose, we have no need to be here. We're here for that one purpose. And so I say to you again, that song that Charles sang was so important to us, inviting us to surrender all. But now why is this mystery great? He says in John 14, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things because I am going to the Father. Isn't that amazing? Jesus as a man says, I'm going now. So you thought I did great things when I was here. But listen, when I leave now, 
and the Spirit of God comes in my place to indwell you. Do you know something? You're going to do greater things than I ever could do on this earth. Isn't that amazing? You and I as the body of Christ could do more what Jesus Christ ever did while he was on earth. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Do you believe it? Beloved, I, 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 I tell you the truth. When these... Uh, we can do greater things than he. Why? Because now Jesus is not only in one place with a few at a time. He is with all of God's people all the time. And we can draw upon his power. Notice what he says in John 16. I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Because unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. I've got to go because I want these greater things to be done on the earth. And who is going to do it? You and me. Why? Because I am now incarnate in you. In you. You're not just another human being. I hate these excuses. When they make mistakes, people say, I'm just human. Oh, person, you are a human with the triune God living within you with the purpose of glorifying Jesus Christ, and we have his power at our disposal. We're not just human. It says, when he comes, he will convict the word of guilt in regard to sin, to righteousness, and judgment, in regard to sin, and so on. Now, he says, when he comes, these things are going to happen. When who comes? The Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to be living within us. So how does this conviction come about? Through you and me living out the gospel. That's how it comes about. Today the Holy Spirit is vindicating the resurrected Christ in and through the behavior of the church. And so I ask you, what is it in our activities, in our attitudes, our behavior, as an, as an individual in a local church, that can only be explained by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit? If you can answer that question and see things, you'll be describing how the mystery of godliness is being manifested. It's been manifested by doing the things that only he can do in your life. Jesus was the first Christmas gift. The word became flesh. That's the mystery of the incarnation. The Holy Spirit is the post-Christmas gift. He makes it possible for the flesh to become the word in everyday life. That is the mystery of godliness. The second phase of the incarnation of Christ in the world. So I ask you today, having reflected upon the mystery of the godliness, are you a godly person today? Does your life reveal that Emmanuel is not only with you, but in you as well? This is how your flesh becomes the word. Will you surrender your all so that you live out the word of God in your flesh? I trust that you will.